Well, I have the distinct honor of introducing our speaker for today, uh, our, our man Derek Wu, who has served, yes, who has served us so beautifully uh, over the, the course of the last few years as a worship leader, is also a fantastic preacher, and so we're going to get to share in that gift Never today. Never means to be seen. <laughs> <laughs> Set the bar high. Um, Derek has been such a gift to our church and so grateful to hear from him today. So I just want to pray over him and uh, then we'll let him speak the words he has for us. Jesus, thank you for today. Lord, thank you for Derek. God, thank you for his life, God, that just uh, emanates with your your presence, God, and just uh, wanting people to see who you are. Lord, I pray over the words that he has for us today, that they're your words, God, a word of invitation. Uh, a word of seeing your grace offered to us in your son, Jesus. And I'm just so grateful for this man, so grateful for his friendship and for his heart for this church. We love you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for today. Do you want me to pray? Amen. Thanks, man. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. I just want to start by saying how joyful and grateful I was for that worship set this morning. Uh, you know, I, I led worship for a couple of years here and Alfredo is doing things that are beyond my wildest dreams. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. Um, and it's great to know he's taken over. And um, it's great to know that you've, when you've poured your heart and soul into something and you can hand it off to someone who's going to do um, beautiful things with it. It's just nice to rest in that. Um, and also, before I begin, I just want to acknowledge these fantastic slides. Alfredo also did that. Those are also beyond my wildest dreams. I could never do that. It's so impressive. So thank you, Alfredo. Currently, we're in the middle of the series um, on your best self. Culture gives you a version of your best self and what it could be. And here we're asking, what does God think of our best self as? What is God's version of our best self? Well, my sermon is titled, Your Worst Self. Do you, do you saw me up here? <laughs> Just kidding. Today, God draws our attention to the person of King David. Scholars of ancient literature often say that the story of King David is astounding. It is probably, and I quote, the greatest narrative representation of a human life evolving through time, shaped by the internal and external pressures of politics and faith, family, desire, and death. So David's story is going to guide us through three questions this morning. The first question is, why does God include David's worst self in the Bible? The second is, what do we do with our worst selves? And to end, we will ask, what does God do with our worst selves? And how do we respond? Let's jump right in. We'll be in 2 Samuel today. Let's begin with chapter 11. Uh, if you could, thank you. It begins, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel with them. They ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. And it happened late one afternoon when David rose from his couch and was walking about on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. David sent someone to inquire about the woman. And it was reported this is Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he lay with her. As she was purifying herself after her period, then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived. And she sent to David and told David, she sent and told David, I am pregnant. It's 
skip down to verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him so that he may be struck down and die. As Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew to be valiant warriors. The men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite was killed as well. In response to the word of the Lord, let's pray together. Gracious God, may you illumine our hearts to the truth that is within this difficult word. Watch over our thoughts, God. Help us discern your voice in what we hear today. Meet us where we are. Grant us relief from all that burdens us. Conform us to the image of your son. Amen. So up until this point, David's story has followed his trail of miraculous victories. David is enjoying this upward trend into glory. He's thriving. He's living into his best self. But as David's political victories are reaching this climax, David hits a wall. The author interrupts the narratives. Suddenly, David is no longer out there commanding his army, but he's in his comfortable home. He's lounging around. He sees this woman. The momentum in the story stops. It comes to a screeching halt. God's chosen king commits adultery and then murder. David's worst self is on full display. Why does God include this as a necessary part of his king's story? Well, the simple answer is that it's true. David's failure reveals the truth about human nature. You cannot tell a true story about the human self without acknowledging the best and the worst. Yet this is strangely rare. Every day we encounter these false, totalizing portrayals of the human self. People are portrayed as either all good or all bad. In response to these false narratives, God reveals the truth about our complex, often contradictory nature. David is the hero of the Old Testament, the chosen and anointed king. He's the sweet psalmist, the sensitive harpist, the leader in the heart of Israel, but his whole self is on display. Not only the good, but also the bad. So David's story is in the Bible because it's true. And I know this might not sound like good news initially, but it is. Maybe you find yourself alone in your darkness. Maybe you feel like you're too far gone. Well, you occupy the same space as David and every other hero of Scripture. No one is righteous, not one. We will find, in this, mor- we will, we will find this morning that God has a place for you in his story. But this brings us to the bad news, the second part. What can David's, tor- what can David's story tell us about what we do with our worst selves? Let's see what David does. After David sins, we hear nothing of him until God sends the prophet Nathan to him. And here's the story. It begins, But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds. The poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. He brought it up, and it grew up with him and his children. It used to eat of his meager fare and drink from his cup and lie in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there was a traveler to the rich man, and he was loath to take one of his own flock or herd 
to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb, prepared that for the guest who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to him, said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and he had no pity. So David's confronted with this parable. There's a rich man who has plenty and steals from the poor. Now, for some reason, David reacts to this confrontation as if it were some kind of news report. This is odd. This is strange. The story that Nathan tells is all the traditional language and prose of a parable. The imagery is suspiciously intimate and exaggerated. Nathan's a prophet, so it should be pretty easy for David to put two and two together and realize, hey, the, the rich man is myself. But David doesn't seem to be too self-aware. What has he done with the worst part of himself? It's as if he's buried his sin away. He's covered. He's covered it. It's out of sight. It's out of mind. Now, David's response tells us there, there are two things that happen when we are faced with our worst selves. One is David's lack of self-awareness, and the other is his self-righteousness. Think of self-awareness and self-righteousness as two weights on one of those balancing scales. As David's self-awareness decreases, his self-righteousness increases. When David is accused, his first instinct is not to look inward. He's not aware of his own sinful nature. And because he is unaware of himself, he looks down on someone else. He responds in a self-righteous way. Like David, the less self-aware we become, the less we choose to know about the dark parts of ourselves, the more self-righteous, the more self-absorbed we become. This is a deeply human tendency that stretches back to the garden with Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve were caught in their sin, they ran away. They covered their vulnerability, their shame, and their, their nakedness. They kept their worst selves hidden from each other and from God. When God confronts them, they're not self-aware. Rather, they react with self-righteousness. Adam blames Eve, and then Eve blames the serpent. David points his finger at the rich man. When we lose self-awareness, we gain self-righteousness in its place. This is simply what we do as humans when we are faced with our worst selves. And he, let me show you an illustration for how this self, loss of self-awareness happens today. The Greco-Roman myth of Narcissus. It begins with a curse. Before Narcissus is born, He's cursed that he will grow old and never know himself. He's going to grow old and never know himself. Now, that's interesting, right? If you know your ancient mythology, one day Narcissus is walking around and he's older and he happens to see his reflection in a spring of water and he falls in love with his reflection. He becomes so obsessed with his own image, he can't tear himself away and eventually he dies. How could Narcissus be so aware of his own image, yet not actually know himself? Narcissus knew every contour of his face, and he loved it. He loved himself, yet he did not know himself. The temptation that pervades our society today is to love the righteous, and the best reflections of ourselves. We never spend the time to get to actually know the entirety of ourselves. 
It's our capitalistic and social media culture. We become so talented at marketing and curating the parts of ourselves that are enviable and likable. And we know the parts of ourselves that get likes and shares and good grades and approval from our peers. But knowing and loving these reflections does not mean we actually know and love the depth and complexity of our whole selves. We exchange self-awareness for self-righteousness. The New York author, uh, pastor, Pete Scazzaro, he wrote, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, and he finds Narcissus' story to be especially true of the church. Our lack of self-awareness, our self-absorption, has bled into how we present ourselves to God, to our neighbors. Scazzaro's uh, image of an iceberg that he often uses to illustrate modern Christian discipleship. The iceberg represents our whole selves, the totality of our identity, He's arguing that most discipleship materials only touch that top 10%. We never get past the tip. How many times have you had this exact conversation? A well-meaning friend asks, oh, how was your week? And you respond, oh, I, was, I was tired. I haven't been sleeping that well, and I got this thing that I've got to do. And then we smile and we move on. And then they ask, well, what are your prayer requests? And then they respond, oh, that I'd be less tired and that I'd forgive that person from work, that person from work, and I'd be less stressed. And, you know, I really want to pray more. I really want to read the Bible more. Don't get me wrong, these are important things, but they represent only the top 10% of ourselves. Only our best selves struggle with loving our neighbor. <laughs> only our best selves struggle with wanting to pray more, read our Bible more. Our worst selves, they struggle with the 90% of the iceberg beneath the surface. Generational brokenness in the family. Wounds from our childhood. Shame, frustrations, lies, betrayals, breakdowns, relationships, unresolved longings, health problems. We hide these worst selves away. What ends up happening is that the church as a group slowly over time replaces self-awareness with self-righteousness. It appears as if nobody's struggling with that bottom 90%. We never bring the whole of our icebergs to church or to God. And over time, this affects our spiritual lives. Slowly, we become more and more like Adam and Eve in the garden. We hide from God. We develop destructive habits. And Scizero, he's got this list of 10 symptoms of what happens when you ignore the 90%. And I, I share this list not to shame you, but... And you shouldn't be mentally writing this down like it's a report card. That's not the point. This is just to illustrate the depth of our whole selves, the complexity. We use God to run from God. We ignore hard feelings. We die to the wrong things. We deny the impact of the, fast, the past. Divide life into parts. Do for God instead of being with God. Spiritualize away conflict, cover brokenness, live without boundaries, judge other people's journey. And this stuff hurts to hear because every once in a while, these symptoms, they boil over into sickness and we hurt others. Like David, we lose our momentum and we run into these walls. We do things we, were never, we never thought we were capable of doing. And the consequence of our own unself-awareness, it can be far-reaching. Not only does David's son with Bathsheba die, but so does Uriah and the many others who were with him sure we've all experienced that gut-wrenching feeling when somebody has had enough of our worst self. In those moments, we are forced to be aware of the weight of our sin. 
for David, Nathan is the one who delivers this message. After David's self-righteous anger, Nathan says to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king, and I rescued you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house, your master's wives, and the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? When our whole selves are exposed like this in all of our shame, vulnerability, and nakedness, what do we do? We could double down on self-righteousness, can blame someone else, or we can turn to God. David turns to God in confession. He prays in the Psalms. This is supposedly his psalm that he penned after the event. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you alone have I sinned. Indeed, I was born guilty, a sinner, when my mother conceived me. We know that God responds with grace. Even David's worst self is not too far gone for God to handle. God remains faithful to the promise that David's lineage will extend forever, be unshaken for all time. So to our last point, what does God do with your worst self? First of all, God is not intimidated. God has always known your whole self. He loves it completely. Before you were born, God knew your best and your worst. God knows you more than you could ever know yourself. He knows when you will sit and when you will rise. He knows your thoughts before they're on your mouth. So the effort we expend trying to maintain this best self for God is wasted on him. And this is what leads Paul to respond. Whatever gains he had, all the work he had put into his religious education, his prestige into curating his best self, he counts it as loss. Everything, Paul writes, I regard as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. I regard them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own, but one that comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God based on faith. For Paul, how do we respond? Christ is the antidote to self-righteousness. Paul knows that God sees your whole self through the image of Christ. Through Christ, your best self is actually your whole self, iceberg included. Now this is a beautiful truth, and there are two tempting practical responses. Right? Either we respond by trying to fix everything that's wrong about ourselves, white-knuckling change, or we ignore everything that's wrong about ourselves. In other words, the two tempting responses are self-reliance and apathy. On the one hand, the goal is not to work our way into righteousness. Even after David confesses and repents, you'll find that his nature remains complex. It remains contradictory. He never becomes some kind of perfectly righteous human being. That's not God's intention for David, and that's not God's intention for you. On the other hand, the goal is not to simply just give up and accept our worst selves. That's, that's what people have called cheap grace. What's the middle path between these two options? Paul continues on. 
I think that's it. I want to know Christ in the power of his resurrection, the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death. Not that I've already obtained this or have already already reached the goal, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Paul gives us two conditions to navigate this middle path between self-reliance and apathy. First, we become like Jesus in his death. What does that mean? Jesus invites us to die to the false and narcissistic reflections of ourselves. He invites us to see the futility of chasing after a self that we create on our own. We must die to that. And second, Christ invites us to turn from that false self and turn our attention to him. Now, this is more practical than you might think. The turning point in David's story is not any drastic change in action. It's simply David's vulnerable awareness of self, which leads him to a deeper awareness of God. What does that mean? Augustine, he explains this for us. He says, how can you draw close to God? In other words, how can you make that turn of your attention to Christ when you are far from your own self? Grant, Lord, that I may know myself in order that I may know thee. It's paradoxical. Christ invites us to turn our attention to him by examining the entirety of ourselves. And the purpose of self-awareness is not simply to be aware of ourselves, our individual personalities, but to be aware of the depth and the breadth of Christ's love around us. The entirety of ourselves does not just consist of ourselves as individuals, but also the circumstances that we live in, the ways our icebergs collide and coexist with other people's icebergs. In other words, when you grow in self-awareness, you find that your life is part of a larger context that's simply beyond your control. Your choices are shaped by internal and external pressures of politics, of family, of faith, of health, desire, and death, just like David's story. And David's story is not simply about David. David's story does not culminate with his own earthly redemption. David never returns to his former glory. But that's not the point. David's story culminates with his participation in the grand mission of Christ in the church. His name is found in the lineage. In the same way, Our stories do not culminate with our earthly redemption. You don't need to fix yourself. That's not the point. Our stories reach their climax within the larger story of Christ and the church. All this takes is a willing spirit and making space for conversations. God can show you what he is doing through you in your family among your friends, among your community. And as your self-awareness grows, your self-righteousness is going to recede. That leaves leaves room in your soul for Christ's righteousness. For instance, when, when I finally talked with my parents about their history, not only did I learn more about myself, I learned how I was part of what God was doing in their lives. In the, in the lives of those I grew up with. And I saw more clearly the hurts that were being exchanged between us. I gained the capacity to forgive them, to forgive myself. So God invites you to explore your whole self in the context you live in. 
carefully, converse with friends and family or a counselor or pastor, and you will find that you share aches and pains with your neighbor. You will find that everyone is struggling with their own iceberg. Everyone is caught in the same web of sin and shame that only Christ can save us from. And as your self-righteousness dies, dependence on God, compassion for neighbor is going to sprout in its place. This is the middle path between apathy and self-reliance. Ecclesia, in my time here, I have found that you are so good at these conversations. You're so good. This is a congregation that really is marked by healthy vulnerability, humility, compassion, and mutual empowerment. It's beautiful. Keep doing that. Keep meeting at sacred and over dinner and sharing about your best and your worst selves with wisdom and prudence. In a town where people seem like they only have best selves, you're doing something countercultural. And I know at times you might feel burdened by the weight of your sin. You might feel a growing and overwhelming chip on your shoulder. Listen to the good news this morning. In the moments of your greatest brokenness, Jesus is sitting there with you. And he has chosen your whole self to be his representative for a holy purpose. So even though we might not have achieved that righteousness, we press on and we make it our own. To conclude, what do we do with our worst selves? We cover it up. We hide it away. We think our worst selves must be discarded, but God takes our whole selves and he writes it into his story. That's why David's worst self is in the Bible. Just like David, God's grace and power is sufficient for your weakness. That is what makes your story astounding. In Christ, your whole self is going to play a necessary and instrumental purpose in God's story here in Princeton. So go out. Do not be ashamed of your whole self. Find your purpose in the kingdom. There is no past trauma, no present shame, no future pain that is too dark or too icy for God's reach. As I end with prayer, would the worship team come up and uh, would we prepare our hearts for worship? Let us pray. Gracious God, you desire truth in our inward being. Teach us about ourselves so that we may know you. Teach us about ourselves so that we may love our neighbors. Create in us a clean heart, O oh God. Forgive us of our sin. Rid our hearts of self-righteousness and help us turn to you when all we want to do is hide. When the time is right, help us share our whole selves with those we love and shape our whole selves into the image of Christ. Amen. Mm -hmm.